If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with the top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I want you to meet David Barrett, CEO and founder of Expensify, the payment super app that helps individual and businesses around the world simplify the way that they manage money. David founded Expensify in 2008 and took the company public in November of 2021. He's grown the platform to over 10 million users from freelancers to Fortune 500 companies. David is a lifelong programmer who's recognized as one of the world's top network engineers, having created Expensify's blockchain-powered database a year before Satoshi's white paper on Bitcoin. Prior to Expensify, David led engineering for Red Swoosh and held various roles in 3D graphics and VR development. And with that, I want to welcome David. David, first, I've been a big admirer for a really long time. It's so fun to actually get to have you here today. Let's go just to the early basics. Let's talk about the early days of Expensify and like really where the aha moment came from. And then I would, I would add, just for anybody out there who maybe hasn't already heard of and used and the very few people who maybe don't know what Expensify is, um, give us a quick overview. Sure. Well, I'd say where we started and where we ended up are quite different. And where we are right now is just kind of a glimpse of where we're going to be. So everything's like a story that is really like in chapter three of like, you know, a long, long Lord of the Rings, you know, novel here. And so maybe where it started was a bit odd. So my background, I've been a computer programmer since I was six. Uh, computer graphics and video games were my jam. Wrote like uh, 3D graphics engines and video games throughout middle school and high school. Worked in the virtual reality lab at the University of Michigan. Went in the game industry in Texas for a while did a push-to-talk video conferencing, peer-to-peer content. It's like my background's all been in a lot of hard tech. And so it's an unlikely background for the expense report magnate that I've become. But it's like the, the, the path was kind of a, a, you know, an unusual one. And so um, like yourself, I've been through like a few different uh, startups. Um, and I think that uh, the last one was kind of the most successful, a very like uh, limited exit. And um, so I was living the Tenderloin in San Francisco. And I you know, had, you know, more money in my pocket than ever before, not like a ton, but, you know, enough that I felt, felt like I could actually pay off my credit cards every month, which felt like, you know, a huge accomplishment. And I was walking by the same sort of like, you know, houseless neighbors on the streets and thinking it's like, you know, it's easy to feel paralyzed. Like you can't do anything. Like you see a problem. And it's just like, if I can't solve the entire problem, I'm not willing to solve any of the problems sort of thing. And, uh, and I'm like, wow, there's like, you know, homelessness and, uh, uh, and hunger. These are, these are difficult issues and it can, it's easy to ignore them. But they're like right in front of you. Like these are people who are in need, like right in front of you. I'm like, well, okay, I can't solve hunger in the world or San Francisco, but I have the resources to ensure that the people on my street get a hot meal every day. Like that's within my power, my financial power. But just the logistics of that are like really complicated. And so I started off basically just, um, you know, buying gift certificates and things like this for people in the street. And it's like, where's this money really going? It's like a $10 gift certificate for like a $7 value meal. It's just like, that just feels inefficient, things like this. So I'm like, okay, I want to make a card um, that I can hand out to people on the street that 
uh, only works at restaurants and only works at places that don't serve alcohol um, and only works up to $10 a day, um, uh, once a day. And then I was handing this out to basically everyone to ensure they can get like, you know, a free lunch every day, sort of thing. And so that was my initial idea. And I went to the banks with this idea and they're just like, what? Like, what are you talking about? Like, what's, there's no business model. Like, do you know how much work this is going to be? There's like money laundering issues. Like, what are you even talking about? I'm like, oh, they're like, this is too weird. It's too risky. I'm like, all right, I need to sound low risk. I need to sound boring. Like, what is the most boring application of these cards I can come up with? And so I'm like, aha, expense reports. So literally, Expensify was a ruse uh, that I had no intention of building. I went back to these banks and I'm like, um, yeah, so uh, what I'm going to do is build a, uh, you know, a small business corporate card uh, that business owners give out to their employees. Every purchase uh, is, you know, uh, applies an expense policy in real time. And then the purchases go back to your personal credit card and then you keep all the points. So the same exact technology I wanted to build for this essentially private label food stamps card, um, but described in the business context. So the banks could kind of wrap their heads around. They're like, oh, that sounds safe and boring. I make some reports too, sort of thing. And uh, and that was basically back in like 2007. Um, and so I think that, uh, and I started just going through the process of building out this private label food stamps card and solving a bunch of technology issues along the way. While promoting this fictional startup called Expensify, which is going to do this expense management solution that like, I literally had no intention of doing because I, I had a day job. I was like working somewhere else, just like vesting out my golden handcuffs kind of thing. Then um, I lost my job, uh, economy crashed, lost all my savings. And I'm like, fuck, well, maybe I need to make some real money now. And so I'm like, well, people seem to like this idea. I'm just going to go ahead and build it. And so that's how I came up with Expensify was actually just like executing on this fictional startup that I've been basically pitching. So I'm just smiling at one, just the, such a unique origin story and such a big hearted place from where this really came from. Um, I want to go back to those early days. Um, the smart scan concept that you built was really revolutionary, which made it really easy for people to scan expenses. Talk a little bit about the things technically that you had to push the envelope on. So that's interesting. I think it's interesting you hit on that. So expense is weird in a whole bunch of ways. I'm even weird from day one. Uh, and not just like in, I, I remember this article I read a long time ago. Um, it was talking about uh, what could BlackBerry have done to defend itself against the iPhone? Uh, and the answer was basically nothing because the iPhone was so different, not just in one way. It was different in every possible way. It's different technology, operating system, sold to a different audience via a different channel, had different partnerships. Everything was different. And so there's, there's no way you can defend against something that is completely alien in that way. Um, Expensive is completely alien. Uh, in, in every possible way, how we hire, the technology we build, our, our business model and everything. And everything really traces back down to how we acquire customers is completely different than everyone else in the industry. And that seems like a weird way to start answering your question, uh, but I think it's an important context because everything about our company traces back to how do we acquire the next customer, and that's so different. Now, we sell, though we have a, a business tool and we're used by companies like you know public companies, multinational companies, like we support companies of all sizes. But we sell them in a completely different way. Everything starts with the individual employee downloading our app for free without waiting to be asked, without asking permission, and just using it inside of a company and then submitting expense reports. And every time you submit an expense report, we put you in touch with someone more, you know, closer to the decision maker than you. And so we turn your expense report into a highly targeted marketing message directly to the decision maker. Now, that all sounds great, but the question is like, okay, well, how do you acquire employees at scale realistically? Like, how does it even work? We don't have salespeople calling them. It's a word of mouth business model. And because everyone hates expense reports. And so if you can solve the problem for one person, they will just you know, talk to you about everyone else. So that drives 
a need for our product to actually be incredibly employee friendly, which sounds obvious, but no one else in our industry cares about the employee really because they're not part of the buying process. The employee doesn't even see the product until after the decision to buy and deploy is already in. So for everyone else, their business model means the employees can't you know, gag on it, but it, they don't actually matter a whole lot. We're different. The employees are the very first person who see the product. And so they have to have the best possible experience. So this drives our product development in a way that's super uh, employee focused. And so when something like receipt scanning comes out, like we were the very first expense reporting mobile app. Uh, we were the first to offer any form of receipt scanning, um, like way before Concur or anything else. Like Concur at the time, the way you uploaded receipts was by fax. They printed out a cover letter and then like fax it in with it. So it's like a complete disaster. And so uh, we were, when we approached receipt scanning, we started with basically this idea, what would be the best possible experience? Um, and the best possible experience is, because like imagine like the real world context of scanning. So you're in Starbucks, um, you know, someone comes to you with a, you know, as a line out, a, 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 a stack of coffees in your hand is lying out the door behind you and the barista hands you a receipt. And so your choices are, you can take the receipt and put it into your pocket, uh, or you can take your phone out of your pocket, scan it, wait around for the scan to work. And if it's not right, fix it. The problem with like um, the instant on-device scanning that like a lot of people do is it's not perfect because OCR sucks for handwriting and handwriting is a big deal. Because most people's instincts when it comes to like receipt scanning is like basically, oh, there's a technology solution out there. And yeah, it's not right all the time, but it's right most of the time. And so we're just going to like make it in a super fast and flashy sort of thing. The problem, however, like the best OCR in the world um, is like maybe because of like handwriting and receipts, you can get maybe 80% of the way. But that means like, you know, 20% of the time it's wrong. But that doesn't mean you only need to look at 20% of the receipts. It means you need to look at every receipt uh, because there's a 20% chance it's wrong. But the time it takes to look at a receipt is roughly the same amount of time it takes us to type it in. So my point for all of this is that the most straightforward technology first solution to receipt scanning is uh, to actually do the best you can and then ask the user to double check your work. But in that Starbucks example, where basically the barista just hands you a receipt, if you had enough time to sit around and wait for the scanning to finish and double check the work, you wouldn't need the scan. You just type it in. The reality is, even though it's only a few seconds, you're not willing to spend those few seconds to take care of the receipt at that moment. So our design recognized this upfront and built in a completely different way. Our design is, uh, you know, Bristol hands your receipt, you take your phone out of your pocket, you scan the receipt, you put your phone back in your pocket and just walk away. And then because rather than asking you to double check the work, we have an army of transcriptionists all over the world, the load balance fashion and things like this. And so we're more accurate than you are for the receipt to do. This is a completely different technology path. Rather than doing uh, basically just on-device OCR that's like pretty good, we have a whole massive system that's very, very good. And it's a very different technology. We're the first to do anything like it. And because it drives this fire and forget philosophy uh, that makes the best possible experience for the user, that's what drives the word of mouth benefit for people to brag to all of their friends. And that's what seeds this basically zero marginal cost um, user acquisition model that powers this bottom-up adoption approach. And so that's why I had to give such a, a long answer to this. It's like, what seems like a kind of mundane, like, oh, what OCR should we use decision is actually hinges upon your business model. And our business model is what differentiates Expensify. So the next question I want to ask you, David, is relates to this. And it really is about your vision. And, uh, you know, again, many people think of Expensify as an expense reporting app, even within the name. However, you have a much bigger vision and have called on many occasions Expensify a super payments app, a payment super app a trillion dollar opportunity. Can you describe a little bit to us the vision? Yeah, I mean, the way I view Expensify is very much like 
and the way we operate. As like, I view Expensify as a pre-revenue startup that happens to have a prototype that's so good that makes, you know, $100 million plus. Um, and so because everything we've built today, I view is just research and uh, into understanding this sort of philosophy of, in our world, every payment is a conversation between two or more people to resolve some underlying financial tension. Um, and so payments and chat are the same thing. It's basically a messaging. Yep. But people don't normally see it that way. They think of like, you know, expense management, payroll, invoicing, bill processing, procurement, corporate travel, corporate cards as entirely different industries. Um, but in our world, they're all the exact same thing. And so we've built a single platform that spans all of these use cases equally. Now, doing that's hard. Like, and I think that, and so the way I think of Expensify uh, is as a social network. Think of a social network for people to get shit done, which is like, you'd think, well, why does the world need another social network? There's so many of them. And I would say every social network to date is about wasting time. Like it really is. Like you go on Facebook, TikTok, there's, there's almost nothing you can accomplish there. Uh, a good session is you showed up, you clicked for a while, it looked a bunch of ads and you left. Like there's no pretense of actually creating value uh, in these platforms. We're building a platform that's basically for conversations focused on accomplishing things in the real world. But the real world is complicated. Those conversations are actually much harder than the conversations you had in Facebook. They are collaboration decisions. They involve harnessing resources, redirecting resources, approving things, things like this. And so we have a platform for getting shit done in the real world, which is meant not just photography and chat, that those are components. It's about making uh, decisions of consequence and reallocating resources and verifying things in the real world. And so even basically our vision is we're trying to build a platform to link a billion people through their financial conversations in the same way that Instagram can link a billion people through photography. Because we think that money ultimately matters a lot more than you know vacation photos. And so these conversations are already happening. It's not like we're going to create new conversations. We just need to bring online all of the existing financial conversations onto a single platform. We think it's inevitable. Like in 100 years, there's no way that all these tools are going to be as fragmented as they are right now. Like someone's going to link them all, and we want to be that party. You have stared at payments for a long time. You're probably one of the most informed, top three, maybe even in the world, at thinking about payments. As you fast forward a decade, clearly there's some things that are obvious to you that will happen. What are those? Just give us the sense of the theses that you just see um, clearly that maybe the rest of us don't see. Hmm. Wow, that's an interesting question. The thing is, I don't think it, there's going to be any sort of like magical transformation. It's not like the, like some suddenly like, and now everyone switched to like the, a new technology or something like that. Like we don't need new technologies. We just need to apply the technologies that we currently have. I think in ten years, in twenty years, like in a hundred years, I think payments are going to feel similar to what they are now. They're going to be more tight and so, uh, like maybe you'll use a watch or your ring or maybe it's a retinal scan or who knows. But it's going to be basically the same conversation. Because again, like just like we're going to be talking in the same way in 100 years, we're going to be transacting in largely the same way in 100 years. Because it's just, it's about in, interaction. And those interactions are going to be largely the same. The difference isn't going to be the, the technology so much. It's going to be uh, the seamless integration of all these different use cases. Like if we think back to like the early days of the internet, recall what there used to be very specialized search engines. Um, there'd be like a search engine for this and for that and so forth. And when, when Google came out, it was interesting because they were the 25th search engine, which means 24 search engines before them somehow missed the entire search opportunity. But after the 25th search engine, there wasn't really a 26th. I think there's this idea in Silicon Valley that like it's very important to be the first mover advantage. And it was in a new and emerging market. 
But the digital market's largely mature at this point. No new use case has been developed for a very long time. When you open your phone, virtually every app you see there started probably about 10 years ago. And you probably haven't changed your home screen in about five years because there are no use cases anymore. The platform hasn't really changed much. What causes disruptive cycles is not that technology uh, enables new use cases. It's just that a new platform disrupts previous business models. Uh, and so that new business model allows you to get closer to the customer. There has been not, not been a new platform, so there's been no new disruption. And until like maybe AR or something like takes off, there's not going to be that. The reason I say all of that is that uh, what makes Expensify sort of disruptive is this business model that can acquire customers. But uh, we feel that we sort of like caught the last train out of the station for uh, the opportunity to build something highly disruptive. And so uh, Expensify's goal is not to be the first mover for sort of some new use case and payment space. No, we want to be the last mover. We want to be the last platform that consolidates everything in the best of breed of all these existing use cases into a single consolidated and sort of seamlessly integrated platform. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carden knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. David, I feel like I want to ask you a hundred questions. I'm going to transition into a topic that I'm super excited about, which is Expensify is known for having an incredibly unique company culture. And I can't stress enough through COVID with everything going on, company cultures probably never mattered more in my point of view. (laughs) And in fact, is only growing in its importance. I want to dig into a few tenets of things that I've loved about what you've built. Um, So let's start with, first of all, uh, Expensify had a global and async culture and structure before COVID even existed. Can you pay it forward to everybody that's listening? Just give us a sense of the few best practices that after doing this now for far longer than anybody else, what have you learned that everybody else needs to know? Well, I think that you hit on the most important thing is about asynchronous. I'm going to take a crack at this metaphor. I don't know if this is going to work, but I would say like when it comes to computer programming, one of the biggest challenges is going from what's called single-threaded development to multi-threaded development. And single-threaded development is basically where you have a program, it follows a series of instructions one at a time, and it does one thing at a, at, from start to finish. And it's very conceptually simple. And I think most people operate it in a largely uh, single-threaded way because uh, if you um, primarily work with the people that are within spitting distance of you, people that actually can, you stop everything they're doing so they can pay attention to you, and you stop everything you're doing so you can pay attention to them. That's like a synchronous work style. And so I think that's a, a simple work style. It's where everyone kind of starts, but it involves a lot of kind of like waiting. If you like, if you go to a meeting and there's 20 people in the room and one person's speaking, that means 19 people are not are just waiting. And so it's an incredibly inefficient use of time. And it's fine because it's simple, um, but it's also very inefficient. Asynchronous is kind of like multi-threaded programming, where basically everyone is doing many things simultaneously, maybe switching back and forth between them very quickly. And so the context switching becomes very important there. An asynchronous work style is much more powerful because while someone else is speaking, you can go off and go to something else. But just like multi-threaded programming is completely different than single-threaded programming, an asynchronous work flow 
is very different than a synchronous workflow. Your design of your office and your communications are just completely different because you expect everyone to be doing multiple things simultaneously. And I'd say most importantly, it means you start thinking, I'm going to ask questions that I don't expect an answer to right away. I'm not going to wait for the answer. It's basically a queuing model where it's like, I'm going to write down what I need to do, capture all of my thoughts, put it into an email or a document or a Slack or something like this. I'm going to send it and I'm going to go and do something else. I might get an answer in a minute or an hour or a day or a week. And I actually don't really care because I'm not waiting around for that answer. Switching to this asynchronous mentality is kind of a big learning curve because it's very hard for people to accept that I need to package up my thoughts concisely in a way that can stand alone so that someone else can consume them on their own time frame, And they don't need to like, you know, ask for a, a clarifying question, things like this. You need to be a bit more comprehensive in what you basically share with someone else to anticipate what questions they're going to ask before they ask them and provide them the answers, um, as well as just more clear in your own thinking what you're trying to accomplish. So I think the asynchron- uh, asynchronicity is the most important part of this model. Everything else is just details. What platform you use, like, you know, your office design, like those matter, but they don't matter nearly as much as developing this asynchronous habit, which is your job is not to talk to other people in real time. Your job is to consolidate your knowledge into a standalone package and then hand it off in someone else's desk. Wow. It's pretty interesting to step back and think about how much time you can save. Can you give us a sense, to, to your point, if you don't have to sit in a meeting and have 19 people listen, you can put it on a Loom, share it, and they can view it when it makes sense for them and move on. Give us a sense of the productivity that you've seen working that way. Let me give an example how that plays out in reality. So, um, so Expensify, we have employees all over the world. Like the sun never sets in the Expensify empire. Like we have every single time zone's active all the time. Um, and so as a result, if you want to create an inclusive organization that allows people to work anywhere, you have to give them uh, a working environment that enables them to succeed from anywhere. And so if you're on the like, an opposite side of the world from the bulk of the team, and you have a synchronous workflow, like there's, there's, there's no way they can succeed. They're just going to miss out on every conversation. So um, we basically have no meetings. Um, we just like, we do lots of one-on-one meetings because I think that creates a, a direct and interpersonal relationship. And those can happen in a synchronous fashion because if you set aside time to do it, you can make it work. But we don't have any sort of like large group meetings. Rather, what we do is we do what we call a Slack meeting. And that is to say, okay, um, in this day, someone's going to moderate basically a discussion in a Slack room uh, they're going to sit down, uh, write a bunch of questions down. Uh, we're going to talk about it. And we're going to intentionally leave these threads open for like a day so that everyone in the world has a chance to participate. And then at the end of that, we're going to follow up and summarize and kind of close off these discussions. Same concept of what you would like to do. Like you would want just like, okay, we're just going to sit down and bang it out in an hour or something like that. But instead, we're going to say, nope, we're actually, most things don't have a real deadline. That hour was like a fictional construct in the first place. We can give it a day, we're going to let everyone participate, and we can take the time to uh, be thoughtful about it and create an environment that's designed to enable that inclusiveness participation from a time zone asynchronous perspective. And I'd say everything we do is about understanding what isn't working here and actually trying to solve it, as opposed to saying uh, what isn't working here and just accepting like, well, you know, I guess if you're that time zone, you just like, you just can't succeed and that's just okay to us. So there are a few other things that I just found not only really interesting, but also pretty exciting that you could pay it forward to people. Um, You've always had a very flat internal management structure and have always focused on employees over bosses. Can you just give us a sense of the one or two things that you've learned that you want to actually have other people really learn from? So again, my background's all been in technology. Um, And I think that a really important lesson I learned, one of the first startups I joined, 
was that C++ is a great language, but English is even better. Like the most important decisions don't happen in code. They happen basically between people. Like that's where all the real efficiency comes. Like a 10x developer, it's not like they type 10 times faster than someone else. It's that they make 10 times better decisions. They make 10 times fewer mistakes. Like that's what creates extreme productivity. And the most important decisions and mistakes happen well before you sit down to the compiling phase. And so I think my management philosophy, if you will, is highly influenced by my development philosophy. My whole background has been in distributed technologies, like peer-to-peer, things like this. Like massively scalable you know, systems um, can be uh, have very, very simple code if they're designed in sort of the right way. And so when I think of basically management, I think of the same way of programming. Like, like imagine I came to you with this computer. I'm like, hey, man, I've got this great, cool new quantum computer. Things are incredible. And like the way it works is you just you describe as much of the program as you want and then it'll figure out the details for the rest. Now, it's a little moody, it's a little flaky. It's like, a, you know, um, uh, and so sometimes it doesn't always work exactly as you would want. And so I'd recommend having a few of these computers. You probably have good protocols, redundancy, uh, things like this. That's management. Like, that is just what management is. Um, like, people are just very powerful computers that you can fill in the gaps for the instructions you give them. But I feel like whenever we talk about management, we always tend towards designs that you would never do for a, t- a computer. It's like that, like you ever look at them like, well, that's super scalable and brittle and no one would ever do that. But that becomes like a traditional management style. So our design is very much like we build a company like a distributed system. And we say like, no, we want to maximize the value of every single component. And we want to have redundancy and transparency and interconnected and so forth. And so I'd say the, the big lesson that we took away is that every person you hire brings at most one person's worth of productivity like just by definition. But if you want everyone to talk to each other, uh, that means every person you hire distracts everyone else to some degree. And so there's a linear increase in productivity from hiring, but an exponential increase in overhead. And at some point, actually, the exponent exceeds the linear increase. So every person you hire reduces the amount of productivity of your team. Now, the way that's typically solved is you isolate people so they can't talk to each other. So the, the distraction element from each person is like limited. But I think creativity... It's not like a function of how many neurons you have. It's the connectivity between those neurons. And so if you want to have a super creative organization, you need to maximize that connectivity between your people. So connectivity creates means this, this exponent versus linear overhead problem. The way that we solve that is we're very selective in hiring. We only hire people that have a strong natural talents, meaning that you can learn without being taught and you can teach others what you know. So like we're like a hive mind where everyone is trying to capture information, distill it down, share it with the rest of the hive. That's one. Two, we only hire people who have a a genuine ambition, a desire to accomplish something with their own lives. Because if you are trying to accomplish something with your own life, you don't work for me, you work for yourself. And we're just partners trying to accomplish things. Because when people work for themselves and work for their own vision, they become so much easier to manage and work with because um, uh, they're not basically trying to slack off whatever it is they're trying to accomplish things. So talent and ambitions are important. The third, however, and the most important and the hardest is also finding people who are humble, that basically like have a genuine appreciation for, for, for reality and the opinions of others. Because otherwise, you know, you just have a bunch of like talented, ambitious people. You want to make sure they don't stab each other in the face all the time. So it's the combination of talent, humility, and ambition. Finding all three of those is incredibly hard. That's why we're a very cult, small company. We only got like 140 employees. Um, but we generate over a million dollars in revenue per employee. We're like one of the top, most efficient organizations of public companies. And because we focus so much on these principles. You hire differently and you just said it and you've said you put very little weight on resumes. 
Can you give us a sense of, is there one interview question that you really like to ask to get to the core of who somebody is? Oh, absolutely. So the way our interview process works is we literally don't look at resumes. We don't want them to care because there's nothing interesting on them. We only ask questions that start. What do you want to do with the rest of your life? Do you have a website? And if not, why not? And where did you learn about us? Like that's what you, these are essay questions that you ask to apply. And then we go through a whole process. There's like a whole bunch of challenges and things like this. And then if you get through all of that, then the very last step is you talk to me. So I talk to every single candidate. And then the question I ask them is the same question that we've asked the first time. It's like, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And how can Expensify help? And what I'm trying to figure out is that ambition. It's like, are you going to be a pain in the ass to manage? Uh, because I know if you have great people, then you can get value out of anyone. Uh, there's an old saying, it's like, you know, A people hire A people, B people hire C people. And, and once you start down that path, it's a slippery slope because great people want to work with and be challenged by great people. Okay people just want lame people to obey them. Um, and so we've worked very hard to make sure that everyone is going to be uh, held up to the same um, standard. And that means everyone here should feel like they are working for themselves side by side with everyone else. Because it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you have ambition, odds are we can find some uh, common ground. It's like, maybe you want to go north to explore the Arctic and I want to go north to get a burger, but we're both going north and we don't have to have the exact same goals. We just have to have overlapping uh, components of those goals. And so Expensify is just the Venn overlap of all of our personal ambitions. And those are pretty wild. They're all over the place. We're going to end there because that was such a great place to end this. Um, David, first of all, thank you. This has been truly, I've smiled for like the last 30 minutes. Um, an absolute pleasure. Everybody out there listening, um, if you haven't already checked out Expensify, head to Expensify.com and view David's greatest work. Um, and you can join us next week for Ink the Founders Project with Alex Montobel. And with that, David, thank you. We are rooting for you. Keep changing the world. Keep inspiring us. This has been amazing. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure.